0: Hi, and welcome to the fifth episode of Night Your Babushka's Russian-Speaking Jew. I'm Margarita Karel, and today we think about how young Russian-speaking Jews in America are figuring out their missions and what actions they can take to animate their values in their communities. For some context, JDC Entwine works to support a generation of young Jews who lead and live a life of action with global Jewish responsibility at its core, We offer transformative experiences that allow you to access global Jewish communities and stories and to serve those in need. Entwine is an initiative of JDC, aka The Joint, as our families knew it. Today, it's the leading Jewish humanitarian organization in the world. And we partner with and are supported by Genesis Philanthropy Group to produce experiences specifically for Russian-speaking Jews. Typically, folks travel with entwined to immerse in communities that the joint partners with, experiencing for ourselves how a leading global humanitarian organization sets intentions in partnership with communities, and collaborate to activate behind the value of Arivut as safety nets are weaved around the communities most vulnerable, whether that's through welfare services, community centers with social programs for elderly and leadership programs for young people, vocational training, or responding to unfolding global crises. This year, despite travel constraints, I returned to Ukraine with a group of post-Soviet Jews without leaving our eastern, central, mountain, and Pacific time zones on a virtual version of our Inside Jewish Odessa trip. We walked the streets as an anthropomorphized yellow stick figure on a Google map by the Potemkin stairs, smelling dill on our fingers as we cooked together, and shared a toast to our ancestors And amidst this multi-sensory physically distanced immersion, the most immersive element of our 12 hours together was zooming into the living rooms of our Ukrainian counterparts, connecting with their RSJ stories and reflecting on our own. We engaged in a sort of activation behind our values, acting on our curiosity to learn more about the diverse experiences in the global RSJ landscape. And in lieu of travel slides, I'd love to show you an album as best as I can under the circumstances by way of a selection of clips from our October virtual trip to Odessa. Here's how we kicked it off this year. You'll be hearing me and a number of our trip participants. I was so excited about the access point of travel for Russian-speaking Jewish young professionals whose families immigrated from the FSU like me Um, for us to experience how JDC activates globally around the humanitarian value of mutual responsibility. And also to experience together our own family's ancestral Jewish context that the Soviet state attempted to separate us from for generations. But this is proof that they have have not succeeded. And, you know, despite physical barriers to travel, the joint as our families knew it, JDC, this 100-year-old leading Jewish humanitarian organization in the world, is still working globally to help vulnerable community members survive and also the communities that surround them to thrive so they may sustainably continue to uplift their members. So um, through the magic of technology, here we are. It's allowing us this opportunity to connect to that important work to those global community members and to each other as we explore together through the lens of our community stories and how they're evolving post-Soviet times. It's also about how our history relates to the stories of other groups in the Jewish diaspora. It's this understanding that our stories are just as much a part of the global Jewish tapestry as the Jewish communities that JDC partners with in over 70 countries like in Latin America, in Morocco, China, Israel, Georgia, and other parts of the FSU and beyond. One way we activate is to bring things back to life through words. To get in the mood and immerse further in an Odessan state of mind, we brought in text study of the beloved Odessan writer Isaac Babel. For your listening pleasure, I'd like to immerse you too, as we took turns reading an excerpt of his 1931 Odessa stories. In order for us to understand a place, we need to understand its story. And the best place to figure out a story is through its storytellers. And Isaac Babel is one of the all-time great RSJs. He's a journalist and author born in Odessa in 1894. And throughout his whole life, he wrestled with the intersection of his Jewish and Russian identity. He spoke Yiddish, but wrote in Russian. He was murdered by orders of Stalin in 1940. And he wrote beautifully about Odessa. So we can get a taste of his city here. Um, let's popcorn around um, whoever would like to read a paragraph
1: and half of the population consists of jews and jews are a people who are sure about a few basic things they get married so they won't be lonely make love so they will live forever save up money to have houses and buy their wives Ashtachan, jackets love their offspring because after all it's a very good and important it's very good and important to love one's children Poor Jews in Odessa can get very confused by officials and official forms, but it, isn't, but it isn't easy to shift them from their ways. They're fixed in ancient ways. Shift they will not, and one can learn a lot from them. To a significant degree, it is thanks to their efforts that Odessa has such a simple and easygoing atmosphere. Above all, the city simply has the material conditions necessary to nurture a literary messiah. In the summer, its sunny bathing establishments gleam with the bronze and muscled physiques of young sports enthusiasts, the powerful bodies of fishermen who are not sports enthusiasts, the fat, round-bellied, amiable bulks of the gentlemen of commerce and pimply scrawny dreamers, inventors, and
2: brokers. In Odessa, there is a very poor and crowded, long-suffering Jewish ghetto, a very self-satisfied bourgeoisie, and a very anti-Semitic town council. In Odessa, there are sweet and lingorous spring evenings, the spicy scent of acacia and the unwavering and irresistible light of the moon above the dark sea. In Odessa, in the evening, out at their comical vulgar dachas, beneath the dark velvety sky, the fat comical bourgeois lie about on their day beds in white socks, digesting their full dinners. In Odessa, the Luftenmansion root around the coffee houses, trying to make a ruble and feed the family, but there's nothing to be made. Because what can a completely useful person, a Luftmensch, really make?
1: In Odessa, there is a port, and in the port, ships from Newcastle, Cardiff, Marseille, and Port S- said, side, Odessa has known prosperity and now knows its own decline a poetic, rather carefree and utterly helpless decline. Odessa, the reader will finally say, is a city like any other city and you are just unreasonably biased.
3: All right,
0: so I'm biased. It's true and maybe deliberately so, but there is something to it and a truly human being will sense this something and will say true enough. Life can be sad and monotonous, but all the same, extraordinarily, most extraordinarily interesting. Another way we engage in learning service is by materializing Odessa's and our ancestors' recipes. We met up with Montreal's Ksenia Prince, creator of the Immigrants Table project that you can check out at immigrantstable.com. She led us through a cooking class to make eggplant caviar, AKA ikra, and she taught us some tips for making a
3: distinctly Odassan dish. So what we're making today is an eggplant Ikra, eggplant caviar in English, but in Russian it's known as eggplant ikra, as baklashan ikra. And and this one in particular is baklashanska ikra pa-odesske. So this is the Odessa style. Now, what makes it Odessa style, we'll get to later, but uh, I was very surprised to learn what actually makes it Odessa style, and it's not what you'd expect. Russian cooking and Ukrainian cooking, it's very much touch and go. You cook a lot by the feel, you know, a abyssal of this, abyssal of that. It's how things weigh, how things look. It's less about sticking to quantities. You won't see a scale here. I've never, until, Jew- until I was introduced to traditional Jewish cooking, have grated an onion in my life. Don't really understand why, why it's such a ubiquitous part of like more Ashkenazi, Russian, Ukrainian, Jewish cooking. But it really is. I check, like when you check Moroccan Jewish cooking, nobody's grating onions. Nobody's (laughs) I don't know what I mean. But I've made this without grating onions and I made, you know, finely chopping and I've grated the onion and it's totally different. So, you know, those babushkas, they know something.
2: (laughs) <laughs>
3: we're gonna do it we're gonna do it the way they would and we're gonna grate an onion and i apologize because i'm gonna cry and maybe you will cry but we'll ascribe it to the transformative power of odessa jewelry that's making us cry not yet
0: despite restrictions in international travel we still managed to link with jewish ukrainian community members and learn about their lives firsthand An RSJ experience without the immigration story is not one that most of us in North America are connecting with. And in addition to these community members and Ukraine field staff, we also learned from Linda Levy, JDC's director of archives, about how the joint supported Jews in the region since our work setting up the agro joint in 1924, which provided vocational training to Jews in the pale of settlement and the various ways the joint continued to activate on behalf of Jews in this region, even after Stalin kicked them out in the late 1930s as part of a general purge of outsider humanitarian orgs at the time.
1: Uh, The fact that diplomatic relations didn't take place, uh, you know, weren't, weren't allowed, doesn't mean that there were no contacts. There were quiet ways of trying to reach out and send packages of matzah, packages of um, clothing that people could sell um, to be able to support themselves. Um, this, um, and this is a very um, touching uh, piece, and again, I see I have it under the photos. Um, this, this really was very, very moving to me. It, it's a letter that was sent in 1969 from Kiev in beautiful, beautiful Hebrew and Yiddish. From a shochet in in Kiev, who is thanking whoever sent him the um, the matzah for Pesach, and he says, "My dear and friendly brothers, the good and kosher matzah which you sent me, uh, you know, arrived in good condition. To thank you for the goodness, with the blessing of Danka for it is said, um, you know, who, whoever helps one Jew." you know, can obtain his share in the world to come, and this is what you have done. Um, It's a very moving letter. It's a very, very moving letter in its original Hebrew and Yiddish, because um, there were not that many people who were writing, who were able to write Hebrew and Yiddish fluently in 1969, and who would dare to send mail with "m" in the Hebrew. Um, It's, it's, it's a very important document. Again, we have many, many letters of thanks from the people who received packages from the joint in these quiet times when the joint was helping um, some of the uh, Jews in the Soviet Union quietly.
0: Speaking of action during this time, Linda introduced us to a beautiful letter drafted by Georgian Jews that spurred a global paradigm shift around relations and support of Jewish people living under oppression in the Soviet Union. There is so much to be proud of.
1: During this period, um, in 1969, there was a very famous letter um, which was sent to um, Golda Meir in August of 1969, asking her to transmit the letter to the UN Commission on Human Rights and to the Israeli UN Representative Yosef Tekoa. Um, This was a letter from Georgian Jews, not from Moscow, uh, but from 18 Georgian Jewish families who were, who were, um, the the letter, um, if you get a chance to Google and look for this letter, it's a very, very interesting letter because it, it's very carefully crafted. It really is not critical of the Soviet Union. It is, it is saying that according to this country, we should be able to be, do these things, but we are waiting and we have not been able to go and we've submitted all the documentation. And then there is also a, um, a very much a harking back to Jewish roots and Jewish history and Jewish um, yearning. Um, in the way that um, the, the, it, it's worded um, in terms of Jewish history and and the tradition that they come from um, and a desire to to go to um, uh, to go to Israel. Um, and um, up to this point, the Israeli government's policy since it was kicked out of the Soviet Union was to um, try quiet diplomacy and to do things quietly. Um, Nothing was really happening, um, but the letter itself really galvanized um, the Israeli government to shift its policy from clandestine support to to open activity. Um, And the letter also was publicized all over the place um, and it inspired Jewish activists in the USSR and it, it galvanized American Jews into action. Um, and this letter was really very, very um, important in, in helping to pave the, ultimate, the way for the ultimate exodus of so many Jews from the Soviet Union. Stories like that one
0: and the Leningrad hijacking are great case studies for us to see how our people activated behind their unwavering values in such a scary context to raise your voice. And as more Soviet Jews were galvanized to amplify their voices and demand a better life for themselves and their families, namely in the refusnik movement, American Jews like Linda were our megaphone on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And as we hear from her insane story on the Soviet side of the Iron Curtain, too, we could not get enough of Linda's story. Listen to this.
1: The advocacy movement, um, there were many organizations that got established even several of them in the New York area. Probably one of the most influential groups was the Student Struggle for Soviet Jewry. That began at Ichiwi University. Uh, was started by two young activists. Um, uh, they, they planned massive rallies outside the Soviet mission uh, to the UN for the Soviet Jewry movement. Um, they distributed lists of prisoners of conscience, and people wrote letters. Um, of advocacy to politicians all over um, in the Soviet Union in the United States, asking them to um, intervene. Um, there was a great deal of intervention with the with the U.S. government, um, trying to encourage the United States to um, uh, condition certain relations with the with the Soviet Union on um, freeing refuseniks who had been um, imprisoned or not allowed some imprisoned and some not allowed to to exit. There was a Solidarity Sunday every year. Uh, There were marches, there were rallies. I remember once going on um, a series of visits where some of the activists would um, band together with um, New York area politicians. I went with the person with um, person who later became Mayor Dinkins. Um, I went with David Dinkins and another person uh, to the Swiss consulate, uh, or the Swiss mission to the UN, and each of us that day, we all went in groups of three to um, visit and lobby with um, different um, countries' missions to the UN um, across New York. Uh, That's an example. there also were um, large rallies in Washington. I mean, the, the movement really grew and there were rallies of uh, 100,000 people by the 1980s and a little later, I think there was a the major rally in Washington had a quarter of a million people. Um, tr- many people were traveling to the Soviet Union to visit refuseniks um, and they were bringing, uh, they were teaching while they were there. They were bringing Jewish um, religious items. Um, obviously this had a cloak and dagger kind of a method as these things were not legal to bring in and you had to hide them and you had to hide the names and addresses of the people you were going to visit um, and um, uh, it was um, a real way to try to be of assistance to extend a helping hand to um, get to know people to to convey messages, um, I, I was on a visit um, to, to visit refusenix. Um, I went in 1980, can't remember when, the, uh, the early 80s. Um, and I, um, we, we couldn't come with our list of the people that we were going to visit. We, we, we coded them into our checkbooks. In some way, we we, pre- we prepared our own codes to, so that we would understand we, where we were going and what we were doing. And we, we hit a lot of things. Um, uh,
3: it was quite an eye-opening experience. What did I tell you?
0: We were so energized by Linda's generation's work on our behalf. One of our fellow virtual travelers, Fema Zaltzman, thanked her for her heroism on our behalf, and asked the question we all wanted to know. How did you get involved in this? If reading between the lines, what we really wanted to know was if Save Soviet Jewelry movement was their mission, how do we identify ours?
2: Hi, Olinda. Uh, uh, my name is Fima. First, I just wanted to thank you so much for all of your activism, I think we are all incredibly grateful and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I was wondering if you could talk about what inspired you to get involved in this movement.
1: My family was very involved in the Jewish community. I went to Jewish schools, Jewish day schools. From the time I was in kindergarten, I um, uh, I went to Jewish camps, I went to uh, other kinds of leadership programs. It was um it was very natural. It was what my friends were doing as well. It wasn't um it it was on it was on the path that my parents set me on in a sense. Um, and um there also there was a sense of of mission, but there also was a sense of excitement about it. Um, we, we we would go to these rallies and see all of our friends and you know it wasn't it was a lighter part of it part of it as well um, it 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 was it was I was committed I was raised to be committed by a committed family and it, it I didn't rebel against it it was the way I went.
0: You can explore JDC's archives at archives.jdc.org and find over seventy eight thousand digitized searchable photos as well as rich document collections that document JDC's work in the FSU and across the globe from its century plus history of service. A few weeks after the trip, I circled back with FEMA. He had traveled to Argentina, that time in person on another Entwine RSJ trip a few years back and also participates in Insider Connections Global Virtual Service, regularly connecting over the phone with an elderly JDC client in Odessa to combat pandemic isolation. I was wondering if he had an answer yet for that question we spoke about on our Odessa Odyssey. If Save Soviet Jewry was Linda's generation of American Jews mission and our parents worked to get us out of the Soviet Union, what is our mission and what are our action steps? And I think back to the trip, like the moment that sticks out to me is that moment where you like thank Linda and then ask the group, like, well, I wonder what our mission is then. Do you continue to think about
3: that?
2: yeah actually a lot I think for me going on on the virtual trip and hearing from Linda was a really like amazing experience because I've never heard like directly from someone who was actually like so deeply involved in these efforts and it made me want to like Find out more about that history and also about what made those people um, choose to participate like in these protests and uh, even, you know, more than that, like the ones who actually traveled to USSR, which is, you know, a a pretty big undertaking. I think spreading those stories like Linda's stories, um, I think is extremely powerful what are
0: the motivating factors that we're looking for that like maybe overlap with what Linda and her cohort were motivated by, you know, in that movement and like what might be different today, given that it's today.
2: You're you're, you're kind of asking that question to like the Russian speaking Jewish community, right? Yes. And, and I think like, you know, we also like hold privilege in that, you know, we for the large part didn't have to actually, you know, navigate immigration and like navigate learning a new language. I mean, like I did have to learn a new language, mm-hmm. but I was like nine years old, and it was a lot easier for me. I was just like immersed in it, and I learned like you know in like a few months, mm-hmm. basically. So, I think you know, we we basically are, you know, it, it our journey, like however difficult it might have been, and however much trauma there may be associated with it is 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 not the same level as like what our parents had to go through and so i think should give us more ability to like put our energy into you know paying things forward than like maybe you know our parents who did like have to bear a lot of this weight you know, might not need to, like, I think their role was to bring us here. And I think we're here. And I think, you know, what is our role? Like, we are probably not going to be having kids that we're, you know, hopefully needing to bring to another country. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I I do think that that's something that, you know, children of immigrants and I mean, young immigrants like myself, um, I think should think about, and i think you know realistically you can't uh tell everyone okay you know you benefited from immigration you must now become like an pro immigrant rights activist like that's not going to happen and i think that doesn't need to happen i think there are other things that we can do and i think for people who are you know more unaware about like some of the struggle that you know was endured on their behalf, I think you know would ultimately actually benefit from learning about it and I think that in itself can be a a, a call to action that you can undertake like you know learn like learning about your history, your family history, your identity um, I think is extremely powerful and important, and I think can inform a lot about your own self I think it is worthwhile to engage in communities like, um, you know, the programming that JDC Antwine does for the Russian speaking Jewish community or like Russian speaking Jewish Moisha houses. Mm-hmm. Cause I think like you can glean from other people's stories, uh, like, you, you can notice similarities. (laughs) I think, you know, at the very, very bare minimum, I think, um, you know, a call to action can be like telling your parents, you know, that you're thankful for, you know, the opportunities that, you know, that were provided. And, you know, but I mean, I think I think still to, you know, truly be able to, like, be, um, to be, like, truly understanding and, like, how grateful you should be, I think it, it still is important to, like, better understand what actually happened.
0: It's up to each of us to do this work of setting intentions, connecting with our values, and activating behind them. The work is hard. The work is good. I think it's not entirely obvious that community service can take the form of learning service, understanding that it's not an action but a responsibility to learn from another person, having a growth mindset to channel humility while offering support, and ensuring respect and intentionality are baked into these relationships. On the next episode, we continue this exploration of activation behind our values by way of philanthropy and otherwise. Until then, you can learn more about our work at jdcintwine.org slash See you next time.